todo el mundo. Was really... 1881. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. My guest today is George Pennell, an original member of the psychedelic pop band Strawberry Alarm Clock, who are probably best known for their 1967 hit, Incense and Peppermints. But there's a lot more to be known about this long-lived Southern California rock band. In fact, they're still performing, and I'll be asking about that and a lot more. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast, George. Thank you. So good to talk with you today. You too, Stacey. Well, I feel like the late 60s and early 70s was a magical time in Southern California for rock bands. Um, There were also a lot of talents coming together in San Francisco as well. But um, to me, it seems like L.A. had a different vibe. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be a young musician just getting started in that era and that location? It it was a very vibrant music scene. And um, most of my band, except for one guy in the band, Mark Stephen Whites, he was he was uh, like 21 years old. But the rest of us were were 18 and 17, and we couldn't even get into a lot of the places where the bands were playing. And so we'd listen from outside. We'd go to Hollywood and and go to Sunset Boulevard and Beto Litos and listen to Arthur Lee and Love or whoever was playing the doors, you know, and all the, and there were so many great groups and actually um, even Moby Grape were, were actually down here. And I mean, when I say down here, I live in LA. So um, they, they got known as a San Francisco kind of a band, you know, but they were really out of here. They, they, you know, this is where they were doing their thing anyway. um, And all the, the bands that were around here they were playing at all the the local clubs. It's just that we were too young to get in. <laughs> so oh was, wow! Well, it I was mean, weird. Fake ID? Yeah. <laughs> did you have? Yeah, any? yeah, yeah. We did. We had fake IDs, <laughs> but it didn't even work. We were afraid to use fake IDs. You know, things were kind of weird then. Also, they there were like, you know, the like the Buffalo Springfield song. Uh, you know, something's happening here. Right. Uh, yeah, well, there was there was like weird stuff going on. The, the police were harassing people in the streets and, and, you know, they would stop you and they would frisk you. And I actually had goofed off at the airport one day. We were waiting for some flight and and they had this thing where you could laminate um, a driver's license. Mm-hmm. So I used my driver's license and I had a hundred dollar bill and put Benjamin Franklin's picture, folded it up and had Benjamin Franklin's picture instead of mine and laminated it. So I had it as a license (laughs) and and this cop, I actually got stopped and they said, here, where's your ID? And and I pulled it and the cop goes, calls his buddy over and goes, look at this. Because we were, I think because we were so young, we see the, the difference between um, the guys in the strawberry alarm clock we were and all these other bands that 
are known from LA, we were um, Valley kids. And so we had been brought up in, in, you know, middle-class neighborhoods. And, um, and so we were kind of, we didn't look, you know, rough and ready. Like I called the other, the other guys already had long hair. We just, you know, in, in 1967, when I graduated high school, you couldn't have your hair over your ears or over your collar in the back. They had all these rules. And so they would, and the, the gym teacher would take you across the street to the, this guy, John, the barber, and he would trim your hair so that it was, it, you know, fit their wow. standards. Sounds like yeah. a mafia name, John, the barber. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, anyway, wow. yeah, that's, so we had a kind of a different, you know, experience and, um, uh, than than a lot of the other people but we ended up knowing everybody we we got to be friends with the guys in love and the doors and you know Robbie Krieger's a friend of mine it's like we got to know them all but we were all kind of like in awe all the time (laughs) wow so um what inspired you to pick up the bass and become a musician um my very first inspiration came what my parents moved from um uh, Massachusetts to California when I was three mm-hmm. and and my grandparents and my parents we all moved out here together drove out here <laughs> excuse me and when we got to um, LA we actually North Hollywood my grandfather's brother had um, a little Italian uh, restaurant and they had their house was in the back of it so, and, and the, the plan was that we would all move into their house for a couple of months and then, and then he would find a house to buy, uh, my grandfather. And uh-huh. then my parents and my grandparents and, and me, we all lived with my grand uncle and grand aunt and their kids. Well, their kids were older and two of them had a band. They, one of them played organ and he played also accordion because it was an Italian family. And, and then um, and the other kid played guitar, electric guitar. And they had a band with other kids in the neighborhood. And they rehearsed in this house that I stayed in and that I, we were living in. And I couldn't believe it. When I heard electric guitars and the organ and the drums, I was just, I, I was three years old and so it was it and I still remember the the experience of seeing this for the first time a band live Uh it was like unbelievable for me anyway it didn't really manifest itself for a while um but I had I was being babysat by by my grand aunt and when my parents were at work and my grandparent, my grandparents had a store down the street. And so she, the, the, her two boys, besides being in a band, were showbiz kids. Like uh, she was a showbiz mom. And so she was taking these kids to auditions and to dance lessons and singing lessons. And so I was with them the whole time. And they were in movies like my one cousin was a child actor and although I guess he was, let's see, he was probably eight or 10 or something like that, but he was on Lassie and a bunch of other things. And he was in rebel without a cause and East of Eden. He had, yeah, he got all these roles in movies and that, so that further influenced me into the showbiz thing and the dancing lessons and the singing lessons. And by that time I was, you know, four, or five and um and then I so I started taking accordion lessons because my cousin played accordion Uh and then I didn't really like carrying around the accordion and I didn't really relate to it and by that time it was probably 1954 or 53 and so music was starting to get cooler already there was no Elvis yet, but it was it was starting it was starting to get pretty cool, and um, so I started wanting to do different things. But my grandmother also she their store was next door to Nudie's Western Wear, and he made the Western Wear for 
everybody, including Elvis and, and Ricky Nelson and a bunch of, you know, uh, Roy Rogers and everybody else. And those people were always around in his store. And my grandparents' store was right next door. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nudie yeah. Cohen. He, he yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I was always over there. And anyway, I eventually, they, they played country and bluegrass and stuff. He played mandolin and there was a guy that played fiddle and that's what I ended up wanting to do. I wanted to play fiddle. And, but when I started to take lessons, it was violin lessons and then it was viola and I couldn't get anybody to be a fiddle teacher. They didn't do that. And it was like, I had to learn, I had to play in the Christmas show. By that time I was about seven and I was playing in the Christmas show at school and having to read jingle bells and those kinds of things and so I totally lost interest and and it wasn't until you know then I was like in school choruses and the and the church choir and different things like that and then so because I always liked music and singing and, and I had art lessons I was in the art but um what ended up happening was I about 12 years well surf music started and so I was probably 12 or something like that, like in 60 or 61 or whatever. And, and I started to really want to play surf music. And so I, and I, and one kid on the block had uh, a guitar. So I would play the bass parts and I had, I didn't have any desire to play guitar, which is interesting, but yeah, I, I only wanted to play bass. And so um eventually I got a I got my own bass and um took bass lessons at Wallach's Music City and told them I wanted to learn surf music and rock. And they go, Oh, we don't teach that. You can only take lessons to learn jazz huh. and walking bass. And and so so I started doing that. And then my neighbors, um, we had a little band and and we had a our my best friend Steve Bartek uh, he played flute and so and he and I so this was when I was 14 or 15 and and he was only 11 and he, but he already was an accomplished flute player like a flautist uh -huh. <laughs> and you know he was doing recitals and everything well um we had so he was kind of our ringer because he could play any melody and his brother played um, rhythm guitar and but knew all the jazz chords and I knew how to do walking bass and we had another kid that was on the block that was a, a drummer and so we would do these little jazz instrumentals because we were too young to be singing anything and so we we just did jazz instrumentals and uh, I don't know then somehow or another we, me and Steve, um, started writing songs of our own, just making up songs. And, <clears throat> you know, because we didn't really want to learn anybody else's stuff, mm -hmm. and, which is interesting. And it's, yeah, yeah. Most it people emulate a, other songs. Yeah. yeah, I know. We loved the Beatles and listened to them over and over. And when they came out and, and we loved all in the Beach Boys and the, all the surf music. And, and then the, you know, all the British invasion, we listened to all that stuff and, and were influenced by it, but we didn't really learn it per se. Hmm. So we would just make up our own stuff. And sometimes we would find a, a cool little thing that they were doing with something with the bass or a guitar or something. And, and we'd make our own thing up out of it. And so we kept having, and then we would take old surf songs, like not unlike your dad's, band uh -huh, <laughs> and, the ventures. Which, yeah the ventures and we would like even to to this day we do it we just last week recorded um a version of pipeline oh nice great song yeah, yeah by the the chantays i think mm -hmm, that's correct yeah and and we did it in seven four uh time signature and so and it's pretty funny and, and but it's us you know it's just me and it's me and steve bartek and another friend of ours uh bruce hubbard uh, who went to high school with us 
And so we still do that stuff. We, we have this affinity for, you know, surf music and for taking songs and, and doing weird things to them. We do the Beatles Day Tripper and we still do it in our show. We, we do Day Tripper in 11-8 and, uh, and it, it's part of it's in 11-8, the other parts in, in 12. But <clears throat> that's, that's something that we just like doing is goofing off with songs. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Yeah. So as a matter of fact, we'll be playing these things at, at, at our show at the Whiskey A Go Go next Friday. Ah, yes, we're going to talk about that. Um, okay. Get the date for everybody. And yeah, the whiskey is a great venue. Yeah, um, yeah, I love it. Um, so Strawberry Alarm Clock was the party band in one of my favorite uh, swinging 70s movies. Uh, <laughs> on the Valley of the Dolls, directed by the infamous Russ Meyer. So <laughs> what was it like filming that? And do you have any stories you can share about that whole thing? Well, Here's a odd thing. So, um, you know, Roger Ebert wrote the screenplay for yeah, it. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, and and so, and he he loved us. He loved the band. He wrote Strawberry Alarm Clock into the screenplay. It was in the script, and but I wasn't in the band anymore. I quit just before. Oh, that. okay. I quit, and and then the the rest of the guys did it. But then we had a, a, a reunion with, with Roger Ebert, and uh, he asked us to come and um, do his ninth annual um, Overlooked Film Festival, I think it was called. Right, yeah, I remember that. Uh-huh, yeah, 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 he had a great film festival. Yeah, and it was in 2007. Here's what he did. He, he was like the catalyst that brought our band all back together. He goes, I want uh, to have you guys close out the film festival on the last day i want you to be there and i want we're going to play the film and then as soon as the film ends the curtain's going to open and i want the original strawberry alarm clock on stage and he goes i want everybody <laughs> we went wow okay so i said well you know we have, we have to gather all these people and we have to rehearse and we have to put the and and his people said whatever it takes, you know, you, you just put it together. We'll take care of what it, whatever it takes. We'll take care of. Nice. Yeah. So we had this carte blanche thing. Well, we ended up, I called um, all our people, um, Steve Bartek, my best friend. And, um, and by the way, Steve went on to be in, there's, there's a long story involved in this, but he went on to become the lead guitarist of Oingo Boingo. And he is, Danny Elfman's orchestrator for all the movie scores he does. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm a good friend of uh, Richard Elfman, his brother. Oh, oh yeah. Was also in Oingo Boingo at, at early days. Yeah, in the Mystic Nights, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw Richard uh, the other night. We went to see Danny at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rick and uh, Danny, uh, the whole the Elfman family is just great. So how fun. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I've known them forever. <laughs> awesome. And, yeah, because Steve's been with them since 76. And um, he's, you know, besides playing lead guitar, he does all these other things. Like He was conducting at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, wow. That must have been a really fun show. Yeah, that was just recently. A couple, it was only a couple of weeks ago, actually. Oh, it was in October. Yeah, so, I saw the pictures on Instagram jealous yeah. looking like oh, I don't live in LA anymore so I yeah. have, to, have to watch from afar but how great it was really fun but anyway so there was uh Steve and then Ed King who had uh, after the beginning of, after the alarm clock broke up Ed King joined Leonard Skinner and he became one of their lead guitar players he joined them as a bass player but he became a lead guitar player, but he also co-wrote Sweet Home Alabama. Oh, wow. Yeah, he co-wrote Incense and Peppermints too and just was not credited. But, in which that's another story. But it, <laughs> Sounds like you have a whole uh, book. Uh, yeah, there's kind of a book. Stories there. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, that, uh, it was all, 
because of Roger Ebert. He he said, get everybody together. So Ed goes, yeah, I'd love to do it. And I, I'll, I'll be fun to play with Steve. And, and Steve played flute on the first album, but he was too young to be in the band. And so he, his mom said, no, no, you're, you're finishing school. You're not going on tour. I had just graduated and I was 18. I just turned 18. And my mom said, no, but I said, I don't care. I'm 18. I'll do whatever I want. Yeah. And, and then, um, but Steve, his, his parents controlled his destiny, which turned out to be good. And he went and got a degree from UCLA in, in film composition. And, and so that's how he's able to do what he does. And, uh, and then he ended up having a rock career anyway. I know like in the early days with rock music, there was some kind of gimmickry at times, like with the costumes and pyrotechnics and stuff like that. Did Strawberry yeah. Alarm Clock ever get into something like that? Well, of course, we, the, it, it, we didn't think of our clothes as costumes. So <laughs> you didn't do the Paul we, Revere and the Raiders thing, right? Right, right. They were, yeah, there was all these bands that were doing that kind of thing. And um, our thing was, they told us, the record company said, you guys got to go out and get some clothes because you're going to do an uh, you, we have to take an album cover cover picture and you, you, just, you can't just be dressed like, you know, street clothes. You have to, you know, get something mm -hmm. good. So we went around to a bunch of stores, like they had all these men's stores, DeVos and a bunch of them. And so we went into these places, Silverwoods. And, and, and so everything that we saw, you know, off the rack was like, silk shirts with big collars or polka dots and okay it was like oh no we're not gonna wear that no no no, no we're not gonna do that because we were just kids you know and we were still in in our jeans and stuff uh, oh our drummer randy seal he goes well you know i had lunch in westwood the other day and we were at this place called the loft it was like a, a i don't know indian food but it was like upstairs down below, he said there was this shop with all East Indian clothes, and they were called kurtas, and they had all kinds of clothes and jewelry and, and pillows and, you know, rattan chairs and fans and stuff. And he said, he said, it's really a neat place. I think we should go there and check it out. So we had the, we had the whole band, we had our photographer, Ed Karaf, and we had, and of all things, the, our photographer Ed's assistant was Rodney Bingenheimer and yeah the mayor of Sunset Strip was, yeah yeah right but he, he um as a matter of fact he he just invited me to his birthday party at Cantor's Deli so, so this this shop it was called Sap Perouge and so we walked in there with their photographer and everybody and um this lady who owned it Kathy Scarms she was really, really accommodating and really nice. And she goes, oh, yeah, I would love to like outfit you guys. Let's start, you know, let's measure you and put the, some things on you. And they were these traditional outfits, you know, the, from India. Mm -hmm. They weren't from India. She was making. And okay. they were, yeah, she just had these patterns and she did it right there. And um, so we started putting them on and we, they were real comfortable and loose and kind of baggy and everything. Um, I remember Ed King calling them our psychedelic pajamas, and but we we thought that they were kind of fun, and so they took a bunch of pictures of us sitting around in in her shop on pillows and stuff, and we were we were basically like the window dressing of the shop because it was we were right there in the front by the window. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and and so everything and and the photographer Ed was saying, oh, these pictures are coming out great. He goes. The, they'll love it we had to take the pictures right away up to uni records um universal city records and so <laughs> which was up the street and we get up there and um they loved what they saw and they said this is great we're going to go with it so they they did the album cover and it was us wearing those clothes we didn't really think that it was going to be what we had to wear all the time <laughs> oh yeah it was like all of a sudden we did we did it to ourselves we, we got ourselves they were comfortable yeah they luckily they were comfortable but the, every tv show every concert we had to wear them 
and it was like, oh no, what have we done? <laughs> but yeah, that was pretty funny. Wow. And did you guys do pyrotechnics too? I mean, that's yes, dangerous. Yeah, oh yeah, that's that was Randy Seal, and it was the drummer. He he also played uh, vibraphone and bongos. Well, we were gonna play with the Who, and so our manager hired this team of special effects people and so that we could you know put on a, a really you know he was kind of trying to upstage the who oh good luck and, on that one <laughs> yeah and it they they made these things i forget what they're called but you know we're, we're like you get pallbearers you know and we were sitting on these like magic carpet things oh okay and, and they, yeah, carried, yeah. they like, carried us yeah it was like litter, a, I think they call them, right? Little. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and, and and yeah, so they carried us down the aisles. We had all our friends. They, they said, bring all your friends and they can carry you down. So we went from the back of the uh, Anaheim. It was at the Anaheim Convention Center. And we each came down a different road. And there were six of us at the time. And we came down to the stage on those things. Well, those same guys made um, these gas jets that went up through the vibraphone things and like as though the vibes were on fire and then they had they attached little gas jets on, uh, on top of randy seal's wrists oh <laughs> well it ended up heating up too much and and he ended up with little kind of burns on it like second degree burns on his wrist and so we never did it again that was a one-time deal oh uh, wow yeah. I, think we, I think we were going to try to do it again at some other place because there was so much publicity about it. And we were it was one of those other things that we got ourselves roped into. And it's like, be careful what you do, you know, mm -hmm. when you're trying to get noticed, you know, because then people want us, everybody wants to see it live. Well, we couldn't do it. We couldn't keep doing the fire thing. And then it, then there were fire marshal issues and all this other stuff. Yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes a, uh, something that's done on stage is expected, like it makes you wonder, speaking of the who, how many guitars Pete Townsend has destroyed. Oh, yeah. Years. It was, yeah. That's, that's something that we actually started to do. We started to destroy our guitars. Also. Oh, really? Yeah. When all else fails, you know, just like, but it was... Uh, it was, that was short lived too. Well, we had a, we had a sponsor. We had Vox Guitars, you know, sponsoring us. Oh, good. So you got a replacement. Yeah, yeah. We could, but they didn't like the, they didn't like us doing that. And so, oh man. Funny thing is, um, I know your dad's band had Mose Wright Guitars eventually. That's true. And I know they started on Fender and went to Mose Wright, and and. Um, we kind of did the same thing, but not, it didn't work out. They, um, Sammy Mosley brought a bunch of guitar, three, well, two guitars and a bass to our recording session of ours and said he made them for us, custom made, and mm -hmm. wanted us to use them in concert, but if we did, and, and on TV, and that we could have the instruments for free, but if, if we didn't use them, we had to give them back. Well, we, in the studio, we, tried them out and they were kind of heavy and they were really weird they looked like giant safety pins they ended up in the smithsonian oh wow really how cool yeah and some, yeah and some guitar thing that they did there and um like along with i think prince's guitar and other things but yeah they, they um they were they wouldn't stay in tune because they had so much weird things they had you know how a a guitar has a, a cutaway. Well, mm -hmm. these these cutaways, the the guitar was attached to the tuning pegs, all and so it looked like a giant safety pin. Literally, there you can find them online. They're everywhere. If you put "Strawberry Alarm Clock Mose Right Guitars," immediately you see. I'm gonna do that. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I didn't know about that connection. Yeah, but anyway, we didn't use them because they wouldn't stay in tune, and so he wanted them back. Uh, yeah, I interviewed uh, Randy Bachman for the Ventures documentary that I directed, and he also said the same thing, that they looked cool, but they wouldn't sustain or stay in tune. He didn't really like yeah. them either. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Nice um, 
Well, you're one of the longest lasting members of the Strawberry Alarm Clock. So, um, you know, relatively speaking, not many people can sustain a career in the arts for so long, and it's a great accomplishment. Um, tell me a little bit about your fan base and what it's like to play incense and peppermints decade after decade. And you, know, you <laughs> talked about how you change other songs up. Do you change that song up too? Uh, we have actually, yes. Uh, but now, right now, we're doing it just as is we're doing it we went back to the original thing that's what happens is you start fiddling with things and then you decide okay we, we better go back to the original and so that's what we did we, we've been doing that with a, a lot of our songs changing them around and stuff mm -hmm. we we did an album in 2012 called wake up where you are and um we have a couple of things. We didn't have incense on there, although we had it recorded, but we didn't put it on the record. But we did put on Sit With The Guru, uh, in which we did a completely, we dissected the song, took it all apart, and put it back together and, and did a complete wacky version of it on that album. Oh, wow. But now we're back to doing that song just the way it is. And then same thing with Incense and Peppermints. We had... Um, extended it we had we extended it in the middle and we put this big ending in it and now we're just back to doing it the original recording way but i kind of liked incense with the extended thing it i know we we did it um at a show uh it was in portland oregon several years ago like in 2007 and um it had a huge reaction because it had a really big ending and um so and, and it it really milked everything out of that song that could be done and wow. so i've actually kind of i do like that extended version of it but the band kind of vetoed it and, <laughs> well is, is that show recorded uh yes nice. it is yeah and um you know so um yeah, I think that show you, I forget what that concert was called, but it was with the Seeds and the Electric Prunes and the Chocolate Watch Band and our band. And um, it, it was it was in Portland, Oregon in 2007. So it's it's on the, it's, you know, on YouTube. Hmm. Sounds like a food-themed band uh, kind of gathering. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's kind of Pretty funny. much, yes. Yeah. Very cute. <laughs> and, then, you know, they're... Um, no, those guys are LA bands too. You know, we, we actually went to high school. I went to high school with the bass player of the electric prunes and the guitar player from Steppenwolf. And, you know, so we've have a history. Oh wow, yeah. The bands are all kind of connected, the LA bands. There's some little connection here and there all the time. Now your fan base that comes to see you and keeps your career going, are there um, different age groups or what? Tell me a little bit about uh, your listeners. It, they're always kind of a new batch. That is <laughs> cool. Like, yeah, it is. It's, otherwise, I don't think we would exist because we end up headlining the shows that we do like at the Whiskey Mm -hmm. and, there, and there's like five bands on before us and so we don't ever go on till like 11 at night and so people that are our age aren't going to go out <laughs> <laughs> right it's, yeah that's, that's late know, for me too <laughs> yeah so it's like uh yeah we've already passed several generations the band's 55 years old now wow congratulations yeah it's really amazing and five of the guys in the current lineup were on the very first album that's amazing. Yeah. And there's a, a funny drummer. We have two drummers and um, they're both the original drummer, hmm. and, but there was only one at a time in the original band. But so Gene Gunnels, he was the first drummer and he played the, the iconic drum, you know, part on incense and peppermints and, you know, with the, the little drum break in the middle with the hi-hat yeah it, yeah it's iconic and um so but what ended up happening was the band at that point when it was not even the strawberry alarm clock yet when they recorded the the basic track of incense and peppermints the band was still called the sixpence and they uh and gene was the drummer 
and the song was an instrumental to start with hmm. and so that but the re, what they recorded is the actual track that that ended up being the hit but um it was only ed king played bass and guitar and mark whites played piano and organ and gene gunnels played drums and cowbell and um and they it was going to be just an instrumental um but then what ended up happening was gene's girlfriend was you know saying that you know, nothing's happening with the band i you have to either get a job or or i'm gonna leave you you know it's one of those things and so gene quit the band and got a job oh and, wow really <laughs> yeah and then randy was going around at the time auditioning with different groups he he auditioned with the electric prunes and the seeds and um and then and even the turtles he, he was auditioning around and and then that came up it was to audition with um the sixpence and so he went there and they said oh yeah you're great but they had already recorded incense and and so but right at that same time the producer of the band said i think that that the music suits the title of he the producer was also a publisher frank slay had um one of his writers in his stable uh was had a title with no other lyrics um it was only incense and peppermint and so frank slay said you know i think that that music suits that title and which it really does and um so he asked the the lyricist uh, whose name was um, uh, shoot John Carter. Um, he asked him to finish the set of lyrics, you know. And so it took him a couple of weeks, I guess. And then he came back to the band and and had the lyrics. And so the band went in and recorded um, the vocals. But what ended up happening was nobody in the band's voice was in the right key because the music track was already recorded and it was only supposed to be an instrumental and it turned out to be and so mark whites had written the music and so they had him first try to sing the lyrics but it was uh too high for him and then lee freeman was actually the band's lead singer and so they had him try it and it was too low for him and in those days he didn't change the like today they can just change the the key yeah well, it wasn't so easy you know, yeah and then you it, it was you know and time was money all that stuff okay. well so then um they tried randy seal's voice and it was not quite right for the song and so they this other guy that was a friend of the band greg munford he happened to have been there in the studio and and he was produced he he was also a songwriter and everything and he was produced by the same people and managed by the same guy and so they said greg why don't you try it and it's, it's just a demo go ahead and go for it so he gets up and 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 sings it and it was a perfect key for him and it was and his voice sounded great on it so they said perfect that's it let's let's keep it and it's it's Here's the deal. The, the flip side of the single was this novelty song called Birdman of Alcatraz, which they in those days, they had the A side and the B side and for the disc jockeys to know which one to play, which one to push. And so the, it was they originally thought, that, you know, when they first printing of the record, it said Birdman of Alcatraz was the A side and Incense and Peppermint so was the B side. Well, so that's why they just sort of let it go. They thought it was going to be just like filler. And, and that the, the novelty song was the one that was going to catch on. Well, a complete opposite happened. And, um, and Incense and Peppermints just took on a life of its own. And so they, the next pressing of the singles had Incense as the A side. Um, but then so Randy ended up doing a bunch of the harmonies and he ended up in the band. And then what ended up happening was all this attention came about because of the singles was on the radio and, and became like the most requested song in Santa Barbara. And then it was 
uh, a couple other cities up there in Santa Maria and stuff like that. Well, they um, they said, okay, we're we're you're going to have to do an album now. And so um, the band didn't have; they only had a couple of songs. They didn't have enough songs to do a whole album, and it was had to happen quick. And so Randy told. Um, the you know Ed King and Mark White's that you know the band he was from that in, which was me and Steve Bartek had a bunch of songs and you know because we had been writing songs living next door to each other well they said okay we'll bring those have those guys come over and play our play them you know play us their songs so we went over there and played them all of our stuff and uh, they said well, we love these songs we're going to do them all and so. That was for the first album, and I think we ended up having six songs on the first album. And, and then they asked me to play bass on, on some of them because I knew the bass parts, also in the interest of time. And then they had Steve play flute on a couple of the songs, and because um, and, and they weren't even thinking at the time that, the, that we weren't in the band. Officially. Oh, wow. So... And then, so then they said, they asked us to be in the band. They also asked Greg Munford, who sang the, the lead. Well, Greg said no. He, the, he wanted to do his own thing. And he didn't want to be in the band. And so, and I said yes. And then Steve, his mother, he, Steve thought yes was going to be a good answer too. But his mother didn't like that. And so, because he was, Steve was only 15. So, oh my goodness. Yeah, so they, they Steve's mom just flat out said no freaking way <laughs> you're finishing high school and you're going to college that's that's all there is to it and which he did and that's how he became Danny Elfman's you know orchestrator and stuff but um and, and how he ended up in Oingo Boingo he ended up with his own career which was a good thing anyway so that was what happened there but the next part of that story is that so Ed King and Mark Weitz had written the music before there were ever any lyrics. And uh, when it came time to send the, the copyright in, the producer, Frank Slay, said, um, OK, you have to come up with who who are the writers on this song besides the lyricists. And and the way the lyricists were, it was John Carter and he had a songwriting partner, uh, Tim Gilbert and in the fashion of Lennon McCartney and so you know where every they put their names on everything to matter who wrote the song or not and so the the producer finally got fed up and sent in the copyright with only Carter and Gilbert on it so Mark Weitz and Ed King didn't get any credit oh, never made, it never made a dime on the song and and Mark wrote it he was the first you know he it was his idea and Ed wrote the bridge it was ridiculous and they and they were told not to fight it because that's the way it was in the music business if you wanted to make it you know it was so stupid my goodness did they ever they, go back and try to uh, fight for that uh there i think there was a a moment in time where uh you know david gates mm -hmm. yep. uh, yeah yep. bread yeah well his son craig gates um was an attorney and a uh, for exactly this situation. He was an entertainment attorney. Well, he was going to try to do it, but then he said that it looked like a dead end. <laughs> you know, it was like I don't know. There was no precedent for it at the time, and um, so they didn't ever really pursue it. Um, which is, it, as it turns out, it's a total travesty because <laughs> the song made a fortune and they. Uh. They, they didn't get anything man that is sad yeah um now going back to how you talked about the how the song evolved um i never would have guessed that it was already recorded without lyrics and meant to be an instrumental so that's pretty amazing how that all came together so perfectly now is that first 45 is that a rare one now with the um song on the b-side oh yeah as a matter of fact, it's on the All-American label, which was the manager's own label. And it said, 
at first it's there's the very first one has the song as the sixpence and um and that would be the the rarest of rare 45s oh wow <laughs> yeah, there's an incense and peppermints and it's the same it is the exact record and and it's by the sixpence oh huh. that is really cool i love that bit of trivia yeah um, well, I know that you have some a gig coming up at the Whiskey, which is one of my favorite venues. Tell me a little bit about that. What day, what time, and any other things in the future that you'd like to let us know sure. about? Well, um, the Whiskey, it, we play there um, regularly, I would say. But it's all, regularly is like once or twice a year. And um, and we the, our audience is... is young and it's always young <laughs> every time we go there they're young, they're the same age you know it's like oh, yeah and it's uh, kind of amazing and uh, there's like always a, a new you know generation of people that are discovering the psychedelic era and and the 60s uh songs in particular and and so they they gravitate towards that and 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 our band has five of the people that were on the very first album so we have a, a really people come to see that you know and yeah, that's really something else a lot of these um bands that are still going are not necessarily with many of the original members if any so that's really right. great thing. yeah yeah some of them don't have any mm -hmm. and uh but you know so that's something that's our like i guess our little drawing power there but the whiskey is Friday, December 16th. And the way it goes, they have like five bands on before us. And they're all bands that that put in a, a bid to open for us. Oh, fun. Yeah, it's like that every every time we play. And it's I don't think it's ever been the same bands because they get older. <laughs> and so <laughs> they have the younger bands. And so and they're like young psychedelic bands that, and they're great. You know, a lot of the, a lot of them have been really fun to watch. So we're going to have several of those, and then we end up going on at about eleven o'clock. And take your disco nap before you go to the whiskey. Yeah, it's like that's what happens. Our original audience, there's nothing for them starts at eleven o'clock. <laughs> right. right. So <laughs> no early bird special. Yeah yeah you know and, and it's it is a lot of fun but you know it's 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 neat to see all the young faces and and they they all tend to know the lyrics to the songs they're out there mouthing the words to all these songs I mean, you know incense and peppermints everybody knows but oh absolutely but when you go down the list of other songs and it's like rainy day mushroom pillow and tomorrow and birds in my tree and worlds on fire strawberries mean love all these other songs those are the songs that they all know the lyrics to and it's wow. like, they're like wow that's fun that and it makes awesome. it really fun to do them, you know yeah definitely it's encouraging i love that yeah yeah we had a we had one movie that i did do which was the first one that we did was uh the movie called psych out oh yes uh -huh. with jack nicholson and right Susan Strasberg. Well, we had several songs in there and we performed in it. And those are, you know, like Rainy Day Mushroom Pillow, um, a song, the, the theme of it was called Pretty Song from Psych Out. And we do that. And, and so it's, it, those are songs they, the, the kids, the young kids all know the, the lyrics too, because that movie is like a cult favorite, you know, yeah, and, it really is. I just saw it for the first time maybe four years ago. And oh, no, yeah, I know. I was like, I, I, you know, better late than never. But yeah, that's a really wild movie. People should definitely seek that out. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Well, yeah. we, we actually did a, a, there was a, besides the Roger Ebert thing um, that was the, you know, his film festival, we did another show at Amoeba Records and, and it was, the alarm clock we played and it had um the guys uh the z-man and stuff all these people and and um oh carrie nations uh -huh. and uh, they had all they had all those people were there and um it was that was fun 
So yeah. we did another one. We did we did one at the Saban Theater. We played live, and it was for Roger. It was after he passed away, and it was his wife did it. It was another tribute to him. That was that was pretty cool too. Yeah, there's so many great places to perform around LA. Um, what would you say was one of your favorite places if it's no longer here? Or what is one of your favorite places that's stood the test of time since the 60s and 70s? Uh, well, the one that's, I don't even know what it is now, but it was the Hullabaloo and it was the Kaleidoscope. It had a bunch of names and um, that place, and it had a, a stage that turned around it wasn't in the round what it did was you would have you'd be set up and playing and then when the next band would come the stage would pivot and the other band would be set up and play <laughs> oh that's cool that saves time yeah it was good <laughs> and, uh, yeah we played there with with love and that was fun and um the and the other interesting place was the shrine exposition hall there were there was the shrine auditorium which is a big glorious theater thing but we didn't we didn't play there but we played at the shrine exposition hall with Procol Harum and Chicago and love that was really fun and that was in 68 right after I had quit the alarm clock but it was with me and Steve Bartek and Randy Seal and we all had quit because we found out that the manager was embezzling money from the uh -huh. band. And then we were going to fire the manager, all of us. And, and in the meeting to fire him, he said, please don't fire me. I have cancer and I only have six months to live. And so me and Randy didn't believe him. And so we quit. And then the other guys said, oh, no, you can't do that. You know, you he's gonna die it was like we didn't we didn't believe him and and he didn't die and he, yeah. didn't, have, <laughs> he didn't have cancer it was a, just a big lie oh man yeah he didn't die till like last year or something wow well that's <laughs> <laughs> delayed reaction yeah yeah it kind of sounds like he might have already answered my next question but the question that i always ask is what is your own personal rock and roll nightmare <laughs> yeah that's one isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah, that was it. That was the big nightmare of all nightmares. It was having to quit the band right at the peak. You know, yeah. Randy, Randy and I had just finished the doing the third album, and it was right then. It was when the band was doing Barefoot in Baltimore, and um, there was too much control over us. You know, they had total control over us, and our own thing was just being ourselves. And then, and then the, there was a couple of other aspects, you know, involved where because Steve was too young to go with us on tour, well, he, him and I were a, like a songwriting team. And so that ended basically because I was gone all the time. So we it just broke us apart as far as songwriting. And, um, and the third album, then they brought in total outside people and a a small little orchestra, George Tipton, and, you know, had put orchestra, although we were playing, you know, um, in the studio with the orchestra live, that was kind of fun, but it was, it wasn't our idea. So that was kind of what the bummer was, you know, it's like. Yeah, yeah, that would be, you know, limit your feeling of creativity, but uh, it sounds like you have it back now with your album that came out, was that in 2012? Yes. Yeah, that album was was fun. And, and, it only, and that album only came about by Sky Saxon died and his wife asked us to do um, a tribute for an album uh, to record one of his songs for an album uh, that was going to be with Billy Corgan producing it and stuff from Smashing Pumpkins. Um, so we did uh, Mr. Farmer. We did a video of it. It's on YouTube. Oh, and check that out. Yeah, and um, and so and our keyboard player Mark sang it, and then we had then there was this uh, short film um, about this guy um, Gary Davis, who in back in the, during World War II he became like the first person that had a world citizen passport, and so they were doing a documentary about it, and they asked us to do the theme song, and so that it's called World Citizen. 
And so that song is on the album. And um, and then we, at the same time, because what it is is Steve Bartek had his own recording studio. So we were in there rehearsing, but we were also recording our rehearsals and we were recording them to see, to make sure we sounded like ourselves, you know, from years, you know, before. And, uh, you know, because now it was like, the major fast forward. Now we were all the way in, in 2009 to 2012 when we were recording all these things. And so and from 67. And um, we managed to sing the parts in the same keys. We didn't have to change the keys. And so we were doing all our harmonies and, and playing and it sounded like us. And so we re we we did Rainy Day Mushroom. Oh, we didn't use Rainy Day on the album, but we did record it. And I, like we recorded Incense and Peppermints too. On the album, we have Sit with the Guru and Tomorrow and Strawberries Mean Love and, and a song called Hum and Happy. And they were, you know, rearranged and done funny, but the actual chorus of the songs are totally intact. And you can hear the harmonies are us, you can hear it. That was, and then there was like a couple of originals that we were brand new songs that we had just written and put on the album. And then we had all these recordings and then Steve got uh, two back-to-back -back movies with Danny Elfman to, to you know, uh, orchestrate. Uh -huh. And he, and, and another, he was producing somebody else. And so he, he said, I have to, I have to wrap this up and my studio is going to be used. And so I need to finish with this. And so we, let's just put it out. You know, it, it's uh, looking back on it, it. It's not so bad. We were kind of like, Oh gosh, you know, I guess we'll put it out, you know, whatever. Do you have any other albums planned or are you just doing uh, your we, live? We actually, no, we actually do. We're, we have new songs and we're recording and we do new songs in the, in our live show. We're actively, you know, creative. I love that. Now, where can um, fans find and follow you online? Our website, it's strawberryalarmclock.com. Oh, we're also on Facebook with Strawberry Alarm Clock. And then there's the Wikipedia thing that tells you the entire history of the band. Mm -hmm. And the YouTube rabbit hole that people can go tumbling down and oh, listen to oh, all yeah, your yeah, songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's tons of stuff there. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Stacy. All right, take care, George. Yeah, you too. As usual, I'm going to read a passage from Rock and Roll Nightmares. This is from True Stories Volume 2, which isn't out yet, but should be in a few months. And since I had talked to George about pyrotechnics and onstage mishaps, I'm going to read from the chapter in the book Stage Fright. And interestingly enough, this little tidbit that I picked out completely at random uh, happened on December 12th, 1976, and it is right now December 12th, 2022. So what a coincidence. Kiss had its share of onstage mishaps, including misdirected pyrotechnics and flight harnesses gone awry, but they nearly lost guitarist Ace Freely while performing at the Civic Center in Lakeland, Florida on the night of December 12, 1976. The band had just played Detroit Rock City from a perch at the top of the stage and were being lowered for their next number when the spaceman grabbed onto a metal rail to steady himself and his guitar also made contact, creating an electrical circuit. He was seized into full rigor but finally broke free and tumbled several feet to the hard stage below. If I hadn't have been able to let go, I would have died, Ace later told the Lakeland Ledger. My life passed in front of my eyes. He was taken backstage where he was feeling so scared and shaken he didn't want to go back out. But then he heard the crowd chanting his name and he returned to a standing ovation. I had no feeling in my hands. I don't even know how I did it. I guess it was all adrenaline, he said. The incident inspired Ace to write the song Shock Me, which came out one year later on Kiss's Love Gun LP and marked his debut as a vocalist.
concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B O O K S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time.